Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just coming up to four o'clock. Thanks to Chris for great voices. It's Jane Bartlett and I'll be here until 6pm tonight. Today, seabed mining off the PNG coast with Natalie Lowry. The first in a series of talks, read the Russian Revolution with our friend Mr Chris Gaffney. Hunger strike starts in Israeli prisons by Palestinian political prisoners. I'll be reading a piece by Marwan Bagatti, who's been in jail for many, many years in an Israeli prison and totally unjustly. Medical Association for the Prevention of War, their monthly with report with the President, Dr Margie Beavis, and issues nuclear around the world with researcher and journalist and Nick McClellan. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had another one of those weeks. A week, Jane, listener, when what a pain in the, that bloody Christopher pain in the minister for sounding important. I bemoaned last week how satire was being made redundant, quoted that Gary Banks profits person complaining that blaming coal for our energy crisis when the real culprit was renewable energy had taken the wind out of my sails. <laughs> well, bloody Christopher's outdone him. Interview Thursday pushed for the government policy on affordable housing and that brilliant idea to source super to push up house prices, Christopher made satire impossible. Our policy, he sounded very important, is we don't have a policy. (laughs) We just can't compete with that. He really said it. Then again, the man who has to sort all this affordable housing mess out, big economic guru Scuttlebem more less son, who apparently is, um, has, well, has had a regular spot on a Sydney commercial shock jocks program where he had no risk of being asked anything remotely difficult, upset the shock jock by doing an ABC interview, drawing an angry response from the shock jock, Ray Loudly. I don't like being treated like an idiot, he exploded. And I thought, a bit of self-awareness wouldn't go astray. And speaking of idiots, Ray dumped uh, Scuttle them and replaced him with former big supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses, who will devote his fortnightly friendly grilling from Ray to urging the nation to get behind big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull. What a pity we can't pick up Ray's program here in intellectually deprived Melbourne. One report said former Ray loudly regular Scuttlebem's super plan to allow super as an answer to unaffordable housing was quashed by, quote, conservative members in the cabinet, thereby informing us that Scuttlebem is not a conservative, leaving us with the even more worrying obvious thought about those they do consider conservative. How conservative do you have to be to be considered conservative? Apparently, Scuttlebem is some sort of closet commie, at which we'd have to admit he's doing a brilliant job at the closet bit. The majority of that Christopher interview was about our attempts to achieve peace in evil Syria and evil North Korea. Pain in those in-depth analysis, and if you missed it, I'm sure you can imagine how informative and in-depth it was. And if, like me, you heard it, 
we know. But on our quest for peace, Malcolm would have had them trembling at the knees in the Kremlin when he demanded Russia abandon its support for the evil Syrian government, presumably to join True Blue Aussie bouncing along on the US of the UN of the US of the world's coattails, seeking peace in collaboration with those who want to overthrow the evil government, a tactic that has proven invaluable in surrounding countries in Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, where dropping the biggest non-nuclear bomb ever, the mother of all bombs. Interesting how great feminists like US of Supremo Donald Trample the Poor and the train killer establishment and the merchants of death become so maternal when it comes to naming, caring, nurturing items like the biggest train killer bomb. But anyway, that mother of all should do wonders in the quest for peace. And what a humane, compassionate man that Donald Trample the Poor. Why, as we said last week, he all but cries at the deaths of little babies, beautiful little babies. Horrible, horrible. And we mentioned that infamous vision of the Vietnamese girl running through the streets alive with napalm. For we had a misguided idea the US of had something to do with it, but apparently not, because they would do nothing to hurt dear little children and my mind has also run to the chemical weapons that still render the earth poisonous still affect the people's health agent orange and all that which were obviously dropped by some rogue state like evil syria or evil north korea the free world must bomb the proverbial out of to teach it the civilized world won't tolerate such inhumanity children alight with napalm countrysides rendered useless and lethal evil north korea threatens the world with a few skyrockets that wouldn't even make it on Guy Fawkes night, while the US of sends an armada, in Donald's wise words, armada, an arsenal of train killer toys for the boys, and Donald and all lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy like Malcolm tell us the kid with the skyrocket is the threat to world peace, and that uncontrollable socialist would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten ambition in turn echoes Malcolm's echoing of our national capital Washington, which, as it, as it lords itself for dropping the mother of all bums, knows it must bomb the proverbial out of any rogue state, as determined by the lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy. Rogue state which dares develop something as threatening as a Guy Fawkes skyrocket. One of those lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy, great respect for women, lovers of liberty, freedom and Saudi Arabia, plans to build a whole new entertainment city to cater for young Saudis, recreational and social needs. And we can be sure one of the fun, fun, fun attractions will be the flogging stage for lashing any young woman who turns up without an appropriate male escort or who turns up with the wrong male escort or worse, with no male escort. Good. They're a fun lot, those Saudis, aren't they? On fun, 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 the related matters of liberty, freedom and, listener, hands up. Well, one hand will do, hand if you, and if you thought uh, for even the proverbial one second that so-called referendum in Turkey would not support big supremo, now even bigger supremo, recept, tie em up, herd em up again. Oh, hand up. You cynic! What would lead us to think such treasonous? Well, such thoughts would be treason in Turkey, subject to the death penalty heard him up again wants to reintroduce. Such treasonous thoughts after, after all, the no vote got a mention on the news when heard him up again said it was anti-Turkey and anti-himself. 
same thing, to vote no, and they reported the herding them up and jailing and bashing and torture of the no campaigners, the gentle bashings of no supporters and no rallies by the loyal paramilitaries doing their bit for democracy in the country, the national interest, and anyway, the losers who have this poor loser idea it must have been rigged, have a right to appeal to the electoral commission appointed by herd them up again. And if they lose, they they can appeal to the judges appointed by herd them up again. So it's hard to see how people could think the result was a foregone conclusion, even if herd them up again did celebrate his victory while the votes were still being cast. He just knew, like Peter Ustinov, flourishing his toga as Nero in Quo Vadis all those years ago, how the people love me. The much-loved herd him up again, a wise, wise man, knows that democracy, liberty, demand the removal of democracy and liberty, and we can guarantee he will respect the freedom bit, the freedom of capital bit. On which, don't the practitioners of that highly respected art form, that epitome of honesty, the advertising gurus get it spot on at times, like whoever concocted that so appropriate slogan for United Airlines, the friendly skies. And there's nothing more friendly than dragging a passenger screaming down the aisle and throwing him off. After all, it was still on the ground, and the friendly skies bit doesn't take effect until they get into the friendly skies, and we reckon it's pretty unlikely they'll throw a passenger off, even one who objects to being thrown off, who resists once they're up there. As the friendly skies big supremo car Tosimov Munoz explained, he resisted. We had no choice but to drag him screaming down the aisle and toss him off. Exactly. There would have been no hassle if he just got up and walked off when he won the get-off-or-else lottery, when they told him he had no right to a seat just because he'd booked a seat, and he unreasonably thought just because he had booked a seat and handed his hard-earned over to the friendly skies that somehow that gave him a right to a seat. Consumers are so inconsiderate and illogical, aren't they? On the other hand, logic runs riot when it comes to our politicians. Led this week by, well, he's right up there every week, Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle, who attacked those anti-true blue Aussie, long-haired, commie, greenie, wooden working and iron lots who oppose jobs and prosperity, who oppose the government for providing a few trillion sensible taxpayers' funds to get the Adani, the planet, biggest coal mine in the country, coal mine, mining. Good, clean, lifting the poor out of poverty coal, which would open the way to more and more clean coal mines, providing jobs and jobs and jobs and prosperity and prosperity and prosperity for true blue Aussies. So, finally, how dare the long-haired commie lots abuse the law, waste hard-earned taxpayers' funds on points of law. Worse, win the cases on points of law, forcing the poor government to act on Adani the planet's behalf and change the law. How dare Aboriginal communities abuse their native title rights by believing that gives them some rights. For Barnacle knows jobs and prosperity will flourish right up to the end of the planet. He's logical. Good afternoon. He's a real big fan of our Deputy PM, isn't he? That's Mr Kevin Healy. And I'm sure he might be talking about him again tomorrow if you're listening to City Limits between 9 and 10 on 3CR.
855 3CR Digital or you could streaming 3cr.org.au. On the program in recent weeks, we've been reporting on the impacts of metal mining in El Salvador and the Philippines. Not content with destroying environments, forcing people off their lands, destroying livelihoods and in some cases lives, mining companies are eyeing off the seabed to mine. And today we focus on plans to extract gold and copper from the floor of the Bismarck Sea in the New Guinea Islands region of PNG. The first of potentially large number of deep sea mining projects within the Pacific Island region. Environmentalists, scientists, local landowners, NGOs in Germany, church leaders throughout the Pacific and members of the PNG opposition strongly oppose the mining. Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign is on the line. And Natalie, what was the genesis for this push to mine the ocean bed? Part of the genesis for this push to mine ocean beds, I would say part of it is the extractive paradigm that we live in. But but I guess for the industry, it's this fear that we're running out of metals and minerals on land, particularly high-grade ores. And also the industry has been pushing a line that we need to mine these seabeds for green technologies. Um, That's not exactly what we would agree to, the reason to go and mine the ocean beds. But for the industry, it's it's sort of trying to secure um, minerals for the future as we start to sort of... um, deplete the metals and minerals on land. Um, And then also another aspect of it is particularly focused around Europe and the EU, where they have little raw materials themselves, most of them they have to export. And in international waters, particularly in this area called the clarion Clipperton Zone, which is between Hawaii and Mexico, gives them a chance as countries in Europe to sort of carve up these sort of sections to have access to their own raw materials. So that would be a very key driver. The EU has been a key driver in pushing deep sea mining. And there's also some other countries. There's about 27 countries that are trying to carve out their place in that particular area in international waters. Has there been research that shows what's there in the seabed? Around the world, they know that hydrothermal, there's three types of uh, proposed deep sea mining hydrothermal vents, and that's the one that's the Sawara 1 deposit in PNG, Nautilus Minerals. That's the first one to be given an operating license. And then there's cobalt crusts, which are a lot deeper in the ocean, so hydrothermal vents are up to about 2,000 metres deep. Cobalt crusts are up about 5,000 metres. And then you have manganese nodules, which are 6,000 metres or more. So they're quite different types of deposits and they all hold different types of metal, minerals, hydrothermal vents, in particular copper and gold, uh, cobalt crusts, cobalt. And the manganese nodules, they contain quite a few different minerals, including rare earths and Rare earths not being necessarily rare, um, but on land they're not in uh, high quantities of 
deposits. Um, and also China very much controls that market. So I guess for us, we see that, you know, this is a chance for other countries to be able to have access to deposits of rare earths and the manganese nodules have quite good concentrates of rare earths, along with other minerals and metals as well. So those, that's the, the scientific sort of understanding of what the deposits are. So the hydrothermal vents are placed all around the world. So they know where these deposits are. They know where the hydrothermal vents are. They know where, not all, but they know where the cobalt crusts are. And they also know that there's this big kind of deposit of manganese nodules in international waters, in this, particularly in this clarion clipperton zone. How advanced is the technology to extract it from the seabed? In terms of cobalt crust and manganese nodules, uh, we would say, you know, they're definitely in process, but certainly not ready. Some people say they're probably a decade away, really, from manganese nodules because it's so so deep. But in terms of hydrothermal vents, particularly the Sawara One project uh, by Nautilus Minerals, their tools are have actually been... They're actually about to go into testing stage, their production tools. You could say that's pretty advanced um, because they, I guess, over the next year will be their, their testing trials. In, in, they've just arrived in Papua New Guinea. There must be a lot of money being invested in these tools. I couldn't imagine what they look like. Well, interestingly, Nautilus Minerals financially isn't so fantastic. They've been struggling to be able to get, you know, they wanted to start operations around 2011, now it's 2017. So it's actually taken that long to be able to get the investors to be able to build that machinery and, I guess, keep Nautilus afloat as well. In terms of in terms of the other deposits and the other areas, our understanding is that's still a way to go. There is actually some of the world's largest dredging companies that will be that are engaged in that, and uh, Germany and South Africa and the UK are probably the most prominent countries that are developing the machinery. And who are Nautilus? So Nautilus Minerals is a Canadian-based company. It's a small company. Uh, its main investors is a one of the wealthiest men in Russia and a very wealthy billionaire in Oman. So you're not your traditional investors, you know, of the large corporations. In fact, the only sort of large corporation that is um, invested in Nautilus is Anglo-American, and they have a relatively small investment in terms of how big they are as a company. They only have about 3% in Nautilus. What are the major concerns of the, the many groups and individuals opposing this form of mining? For the communities that are frontline to the Sawarawan deposit and that, that Nautilus Minerals uh, owns is the fact that they've never really been consulted about this project happening in their seas and some of these communities only live 30 kilometres away. So this is not very far from the land, this particular proposed operation. So for them, it's free prior informed consent. These are communities that have lived on their lands and on their in their oceans, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. And then there's also the sort of uh, scientific concern and the lack of adhering to the precautionary principle that there's really not enough science to really know what the impacts are. And we're talking about large-scale extraction of ecosystems we know very, very little about. We only know about 
5% of the marine life in our deep seas. Um, so there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of unknowns around once those hydrothermal vents are, are dredged, how large that plumage will be and considering the ocean move, how that the plumage, the sediment plumage will move and how far it will move and the nature of the heavy metals and the toxins that will be disturbed in that process, how that may move up the food chain to affect not only marine life but also coastal communities. And the coastal communities depend on the marine life for their subsistence? Yes, their connection to their oceans in New Island province, to York Islands, East New Britain and those are the communities that would be the closest to this deposit. They don't just have this sort of economic connection of, or, you know, their, their livelihood connection. They also have a very strong cultural connection to their seas. They don't just live on their land. Their oceans is just important to them, which is a little hard in a Western context to understand the um, importance of ocean for these Indigenous people and, I guess, in a sense, the sort of song lines that go across these oceans to other communities... And so for them, it's uh, an absolute assault on their lives and livelihoods. So the hydrothermal vents are basically, they are volcanoes of the deep sea. So they are these big chimneys that come out from the seafloor bed and they spew out this black smoke, which is very, very mineral rich. A huge amount of pressure that deep, it's very dark. And also around the hydrothermal vents, it's extremely hot. So the ecosystems, the marine life that live around there are, are very, very unique. And as I said before, we know very little about it. And there's many scientists, in fact, in the last year, there has been a research paper coming out that states this is probably the origins of life. So, you know, here's an industry that really hasn't done the research and has the science to be able to say what the impacts will be and an industry that is, you know, playing with the beginnings of, of what life is on the planet. So, you know, it's a real, it's, a, it's an experiment and this is how Papua New Guineans and Pacific communities feel. They feel like guinea pigs in this experiment. They've, they've been experimented on with nuclear testing and now here's this new frontier industry that's going to be experimented in their waters. Does this work involve underground pipelines, which no. could break, no? No, so with, with the hydrothermal vents, so they're quite different operations, but with the hydrothermal vents, I'll focus on that because that is really, you know, the first uh, operating licence is, is a mining of hydrothermal vents. It, basically, they have these machines that, that pretty much dredge the seafloor. Sea they'll be dredging it, they'll be knocking down those chimneys and then they'll be dredging it and then they get sucked up a riser pipe into a shipping vessel on the surface. And then the idea is that that will be shipped to be processed somewhere um, and it'll be China. So there is a whole lot of issues with that riser pipe and the, the issue of spillage that could potentially happen. Um, in that area of Papua New Guinea, there is earthquakes and, you know, they happen down in the seabed. They, they're not uncommon at all. So there's no kind of thoughts of what would happen in those sort of cases. So it's not just the actual dredging process, but it's also the process of moving that up, up through the riser, through the um, piping riser, up into the shipping vessel on the surface. 
What environmental impact studies have been required for this project? Well, Nautilus has an environmental impact assessment. Our campaign, the Deep Sea Mining Campaign, has published two scientific reports, one which is more of a general overview on the deep floors of the report, some of which I've mentioned, which is the lack of the science around what the impacts are of particularly of the plumage and the toxicity of that plumage. Um, the second report is, an, is done by an oceanographer, so it goes into a lot more scientific detail of the lack of oceanography within that EIS Yes, so there's sort of two key reports focused specifically on Nautilus, but the reality is there really hasn't been enough research. There is more research coming up, particularly in the last year, as some universities, are, particularly in international waters, are actually having access to go down and look at those ecosystems. For example, the manganese nodules that take um, about a million years or more to form Apparently there's a particular type of fish in the deep sea that lays its eggs near or on a plant very close to these nodules and these eggs can take a very, very long time to hatch. So it's a very kind of slow process. Um, so we don't really know what the impacts are once those nodules were, as they like to call harvest, but basically picked up off that sea floor. What that effect will be to these you know, ecosystems at, and as I say, we still know so much, little about. And when you do hear from scientists who are working in the deep sea oceans, they will continuously say that. We just know very little about these ecosystems. Um, and so some of those studies, these scientists believe that the environments that could be mined, it could take a very, very long time for them to be able to um, come back. With projects such as this, what is the role for organisations such as the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and the International Seabed Authority? So the International Seabed Authority is the authority that is giving out the exploration licences and their role at the moment is one of pro-deep sea mining. Um, there are several, there's three organisations, three NGOs that have observer status and I guess their role has been to really, really try and push for the most stringent regulations, hopefully with the purpose that this industry couldn't go ahead. So ISA has been handing out those exploration licences in inter international waters. Um, in the case of the Sawara One project, that's because it's in Papua New Guinea's economic exclusive zone, that was actually the result of the Papua New Guinea government giving the green light for that operating licence. And the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea? Does that um, get involved? That's not probably an area I would have huge knowledge in. I think um, there is a whole lot of revisions that will be happening around that. There is actually a UN meeting in the, from the 5th to the 9th of June in New York on global governance of oceans. Um, and there will be community from Papua New Guinea and the Pacific going to that UN meeting to really push for a ban on seabed mining. Um, so there will be a very strong voice there. I think I think the issue we're finding is that a lot of people don't really know that this industry is... They may have heard of it, but they don't really wear it, see where it's at and that this, there is actually quite an aggressive push for deep-sea mining to happen, which, you know, f for many of us, we see it's just yet another assault on our oceans, um, our poor oceans that are suffering from pollution, from overfishing um, and, you know, from the effects of climate change. Would you say that there's been a fair bit of pressure on the PNG government to agree to this? I think that the Papua New Guinean government or 
politicians to, to be, house be, um, probably had dollars in their eyes <laughs> making this decision. Uh, we also don't believe that this is particularly an economic industry. It's, you know, we only have to look in Papua New Guinea to see the impacts of land-based mining and how their benefits really aren't trickling down to the community. So when it comes to some mining in the ocean, there's going to be very little benefit for Papua New Guineans themselves. So this is a deal with particular politicians and, you know, this new industry. And we have to remember that China is very much engaged in deep sea mining. And even if we were to be very successful in looking Nautilus off, we also know that that wouldn't be the end of the story, that China will very much be in the wings. They've already sent a research ship to the East New Britain Trench, which is um, much deeper, it's a much deeper ocean, to do research around minerals in the deep sea there. So what you've got to do is make sure that they do it properly if, if it's inevitable, or is it, is it inevitable? Look, the deep sea mining campaign, and we're very much, you know, we partner with our partners with Papua New Guineans, our Papua New Guinea group, Bismarck Ramu Group, and there's also the Alliance of Solar Warriors, which are communities across the Bismarck Sea who are deeply opposed to this industry happening. So the messaging that we're pushing is a ban on seabed mining, and that has now reached internationally. There's six very well-known NGOs in Germany in December last year who've also joined that ban on seabed mining. And the reason we believe it needs to be a ban is because this industry should never happen. As I said before, this is just yet another assault on our oceans. And do we really need to be mining seabeds? We believe not. We believe we need to be moving towards a world beyond mineral dependency. We need to be looking at alternatives like urban mining. And in in countries like Papua New Guinea, those communities deciding what sort of developments they want or alternative to the the typical development paradigm. So we do have a fight on our hands, but as we you know, as I said earlier, Nordless um, was gonna start operating in two thousand eleven. We're now two thousand and seventeen. They are now saying two thousand and nineteen. So, you know, we're looking at different avenues working closely with our colleagues in Papua New Guinea on how we can stop this. But most importantly, the resistance on the ground in Papua New Guinea is very, very strong. And um, I believe that's probably where it will be stopped. And if we're able to stop Nautilus, it gives us a very good chance to really push this ban on this industry as a whole. Um, And I guess that's where the high-level meetings are really important, including this meeting coming up at uh, the UN, the Global Governance of Our Oceans. So, yes, it's it's a big fight. Um, We believe that we have to stop this. And across the Pacific is a very, very strong network of civil society, including, you know, politicians as well who really like to see this industry not happen. And in other countries where it not deep sea mining but there's other forms of seabed mining like in New Zealand in Namibia, in South Africa there's very strong civil society resistance against seabed mining in Namibia they have pushed for a moratorium, in New Zealand they've been having historic uh, hearings with the 
Environmental Protection Authority. And even here in the Northern Territory of Australia, Aboriginal communities, along with fisheries and environment groups, managed to push for a moratorium on seabed mining there. So we believe that the resistance is there. Um, we still need a lot of raising awareness in the international sort of arena around this industry. But for me, whenever I speak to people and I say, so this is what they want to do, most people just shake their heads. They can't believe that we're going that far. Um, but we're also talking about an extractive paradigm that is also looking at trying to mine outer space, including asteroids. Um, so we have to be very vigilant that uh, of, of trying to build a narrative around moving beyond mineral dependency. And that's not just stopping fossil fuels, which of course is very, very important, but the sort of extractive paradigm as a whole, whether it's metals or minerals or forests or, you know, building hydro dams or whatever it is, this extractive narrative that we live in is, um, is incredibly destructive for people's lives and livelihoods and for our, our planet. How does the resistance on the ground in PNG manifest itself? I think right from the beginning, it actually, Kaka Islanders, because that's where they were first looking at uh, the, the first sort of operating licence, the resistance there happened very early on, um, very much driven by youth and women, to say, we don't want this in our oceans. You haven't talked to us. We haven't consented to this. You've got to remember that. You know, These are Indigenous people under international, you know, the, the United Nations Declaration on Indigenous People's Rights. You have the right of free, prior, informed consent actually enshrined within the Papua New Guinean Constitution. is also free, prior, informed consent. These people are customary landowners. They own their lands and, and that goes beyond the land into the ocean, even though within the narrative of the nation state, they say that's not the case. For these people who've lived there, the time immemorial this, this is their their oceans and they believe they have a right to say no and they, they have said no beyond the Kaka Islanders that resistance has now moved within uh, New Ireland province Duke of York Islands and um, East New Britain because they're closest to the Sawara one deposit and when you look at a map of their fishing grounds the Sawara deposit is sort of banging you know in there so on that sort of I guess, economic kind of social livelihood um, level. You know, the fishing is very important for them. But there's also a lot of cultural practices and, and cultural sites that they believe will be um, very much disturbed by this new type of mining. And Papua New Guineans had seen the devastating, devastating effects of mining on land, how it's displaced communities, how it's, you know, killed rivers, how... Um, and they know that the government doesn't have the ability to regulate and monitor the mines properly on land. How are they going to be able to do it in the deep sea? Yes, as you've said, disasters on the land in some way can be contained, but in the sea it's another matter altogether. Yeah, well, it's out of sight, out of mind, you know. So, yes, if you're going to mine a mountain... We can see, um, well, there's a lot of unseen destruction as well, but you can see pretty much the destruction that's there. But if it's that deep in the sea, how are we supposed to see that or monitor that? Um, and also the ocean moves. It has, it's very different to the land. So there's all these very, you know, as I said, unknowns and this lack of adhering to the precautionary principle. And even though there's, um, you know, there are push by some NGOs for pushing for these stringent regulations, and we're very, very happy that... There are organisations out there really 
pushing on those high-level meetings and really doing that work. We need them, and we also work closely with them. And a lot of those, a lot of the people within those organisations um, are actually very supportive of the ban for seabed mining. I think deep in their hearts, they'd like to see this industry not happen. Um, but we also need people fighting at that level where they're making these decisions, so they're fighting for the most stringent regulations possible. So if, you know, it does go ahead, that there is going to be best practice. Um, and we also, you know, the, the international waters is, this is uh, the commons of man. So there, there's a lot of debate and discussion that needs to be happen about the use of our oceans. And I think the problem with this industry is a lot of people don't really know that it even exists, let alone at the stage it's at. Um, and just recently when I posted about the production tools that have arrived in Port Moresby, I posted about the images of the production tools and the response from people was quite overwhelming. They were shocked that this was happening. They were shocked they'd got this far, that there was machines already built and they were about to test them. Um, and as much as obviously we've been building awareness along with other groups, you know, I guess there's so many issues out there and because this is an interesting campaign, it's a very interesting campaign for me personally around mining and extractivism because it's the first one I've worked on where the industry hasn't started. So, you know, that's why I believe we've still got a chance to stop it and many of us do and, you know, Papua New Guinea community and community across the Pacific are very adamant about stopping this industry before it starts. Okay, well, good luck with it. It certainly is to... Natalie Lowry, environmentalist, and she'll be going to PNG very shortly. I think it's either end of May or June, so we'll catch up with Natalie when she returns to meet with the people up there who are fighting this deep sea mining. The Clock Tower Centre presents a definitive story from our neglected Indigenous history with Obidjeri Theatre Company's production of Corrandirk. Based on the true story of the men and women of Corrandirk Aboriginal Reserve who went head-to-head with the Aboriginal Protection Board. This special production brings these voices from the past to life. Performing Wednesday the 24th of May at 8pm. Bookings and more information at clocktowercentre.com.au or call 9243 9191. That's 9243 9191. A 3CR supporter. Now to our monthly segment with Dr Margie Beavis, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Plenty to talk about, Margie. Can't go past the fact that the Australian Government made the decision to snub the nuclear ban talks. How has that decision gone down with the rest of the world? The Australians, I think have joined with most of the NATO nations. I think the Netherlands didn't, but I think almost all the other NATO nations joined the protest that the US held outside the United Nations, which was sort of fairly extraordinary to have the US envoy of the United Nations holding a, a protest outside the United Nations with her back to the negotiations. It was very symbolic. And ironically, that protest highlighted the negotiations that were going ahead and in fact got the much better coverage and many more people understanding what was going on and what was happening. It was, was, I don't think that was the desired effect. But the other aspects of Australia boycotting the talks was that because they weren't in the talks, the usual undermining that they had been doing was not there. So in fact, 
when Tillman Ruffey went to the talks and observed them, said that they actually went extremely well, that, that, that procedural motions that can sometimes take a really long time went through very swiftly because everyone was very much interested in getting down to the nuts and bolts of the meat of the negotiations rather than sometimes the prolonged delaying tactics that happen. So I think in some ways both the US and Australia helped once again the talks to be more highlighted. I think here at home we're very disappointed that Australia's not gone. I think it's a big disappointment that the government is not sending a, a group to be part of these negotiations. Australia's been part of every other disarmament negotiation, you know, and chemical weapons on biological weapons, um, landmines, cluster munitions, we were there and, and part of it. And so it's really disappointing that that's not happening. And, and interestingly, the Labor Party and the Greens passed a motion in the Senate sort of regarding Australia's absence. So it hasn't gone down well in the Senate. That motion got good support in the Senate. So really it's the Liberal Party that's boycotting these negotiations and um, it's very good to see both the Labor Party and the Greens standing up and saying Australia should be part of these negotiations. Do the NGOs have any role in these talks? They do. They did some tremendous presentations, I think, on either one or two days. There were... ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, helped some nuclear weapons survivors come over to the talks from the Pacific and also some an, an Indigenous woman who was uh, subject to nuclear weapons testing in Australia. And I think it was very, it's very powerful to have testimony from people who have actually lived through these weapons, who've actually had their lives completely changed by and damaged and the long-term impacts of using these weapons, even just in the test framework, is, is horrendous. And I think it's been very good to have civil society bearing witness to the actual sort of human impacts of the weapons. And in fact, the other way in which civil society has been really constructively working with these talks has been the three conferences. Your listeners um, may be aware that there were three conferences that were held in Vienna, in Mexico and in Austria over the space of a couple of years where governments, sort of about 155, 158 governments sent official envoys and listened to all the long-term and short-term impacts of use of nuclear weapons. So the governments that are attending these talks in New York now are very well versed in all the sort of ghastly and long-term and major consequences of nuclear weapons detonation. So there's a sort of strength in the resolve of governments because they've been to these conferences and and have an understanding of of, of what using these weapons really means. I was told that the leaders of the NATO countries were told that they were to attend this. You mentioned that European countries didn't attend and I'd imagine that Japan and Australia were similarly told you know what your place is, you know, yes, you don't yes, go. I think, yes, I think at one point the, the UN envoy said, you know, America's taking names. I mean, it sort of feels like the bully in the playground, really. It's sort of, they are concerned about these talks because they will impact on, certainly, on nuclear weapons. They will, I mean, they'll start with, by making them illegal, making manufacture um, of these weapons illegal, and then in turn it'll start a sort of divestment program and, and also stigmatise these weapons for all countries that are using them and, and it really is is the start of a, quite a powerful movement that will, I mean it won't be fast, it'll be decades long but I think in terms of actual steps that are really going to be positive towards disarmament, this is, this, is this is the real game and so the Americans are very worried about that. And the other bands that you mentioned, that they took quite a long time to get to fruition didn't they? Oh yes, I mean once the, once the ban is 
for instance, the landmines treaty, which everybody said, oh, this is going to do no good and it's a waste of time and why bother, has actually been surprisingly effective, very effective. Once it passes at the United Nations, it then has to be ratified, and it depends on the individual treaty, but whether 30 or 40 or 50 countries ratified into law, once a certain number, and that will be determined by the treaty negotiations, but once a certain number is passed, that then becomes international law. And once that happened with the landmine treaties, landmine treaty, it, it actually did meant that companies would no longer invest in making landmines, governments were divesting their stockpiles, and, and really they're now extremely frowned upon to be used. When is the next round of talks? June, July, the New York, and conclude on July 7th. And the chairman of the current talks was very optimistic that these, these treaties often take a very long time because there's so many different clauses to be considered, but, but she was very optimistic that actually July 7th was an achievable deadline, so we're, we're really hopeful that there will be a very strong and enforceable and workable treaty that comes out from these talks. And I'm quite excited because I'm going over to see part of the talks in New York, so that's, that's going to be very interesting. Great. I'll catch you when you get back. <laughs> I'd love to. The US war on the Middle East, particularly Syria and Afghanistan at the moment. And, and the bombing after the so-called gas attack last week in Syria, what many people might not be aware of, that that was totally illegal anyway. And the, the bombing that's been going on there for quite a while, which Australian planes are involved with as well, is illegal too because they're, they're bombing a sovereign nation. Yes, it's um, really concerning the developments in America on a whole series of fronts with regard to military actions. I mean, it's really clear that this chemical weapons attack would have much been much better dealt with with an independent investigation to find out actually where the chemical weapons came from and who... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's still unclear as to where they actually came from. And... It's really important that America doesn't feel that it can bypass agreed legal processes just to get a quicker or sort of more satisfying result, that it's not OK to just start bombing things because it suits... I mean, for instance, for US domestic politics, it is important for Trump to discredit his links to the Russians, so doing this bombing did achieve that, and yet by sort of not waiting for an independent investigation, it makes it almost impossible to know what really happened. And, and, and Trump sort of saying that he was sort of doing this for the dead baby rings very hollow when you see the massive cuts that America's about to undertake into assisting and into um, sheltering refugees. I mean, they're, they're doing, they have programs that they're about to really massively defund and, and so that it doesn't ring true that he's doing this as a humanitarian issue. And, I mean, yes, the Afghanistan use of this massive, the largest ever non-nuclear weapon that's been ever used. Once again, the legality of that and the impact on the locals, it's a real sort of shift in the rules of engagement. And, and that's happening in a number of war zones. And Trump's, there are measures that have come out saying that Trump is in fact sort of actively removing congressional oversight in a number of war areas, number of well, there is, in fact, not more, in a number of countries, America is having less and less congressional oversight of where it goes to war and what attacks it has, and more and more the authority is, is being divested to the generals rather than to the executive. And that's very worrying because, 
um, there is supposed to be congressional oversight and, and voting in America when they do go to war. And now they seem to just use euphemisms about sort of, I think I can't remember what the exact term is, they, I think they call them temporary battlefields or areas of conflict. Yeah, I think it's temporary battlefield designation, and, and this means that America gives itself permission to attack in countries it's not actually at war, in, war with. And that's very concerning. Unimaginable, really, the impact that this bombing must have had on the people. They were living less than five kilometres away, the bombing in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, the blast radius apparently is... is the radius is 1.6 kilometres. That makes it just over three kilometres across for this blast. So, and, and reading the uh, commentary, apparently some of them thought it was a nuclear weapon. Yes, it, 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 it sort of beggars belief. I think until you've actually been through something like that, you wouldn't really understand what it would do to the local population. Um, apparently these bombs are a much, much bigger version of the bombs they used to use in, in Vietnam to... Um, blast an area so that helicopters could land. And it's, it's, it, yeah, I don't know what the impact would be on the local population, but it's hard to imagine it would have been good. And you think of the cost of where that money could have gone. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, people in the US crying out for education and health care where they're building these ginormous bombs. Well, it's interesting in Australia where sort of emulating the Americans and that we've put austerity measures on everything except defence. I mean, the defence budget here in Australia this year is about $32 billion, and yet they're planning to ramp that up to $59 billion by 2025-26. And in large part, that's because America has said to all its allies, you need to spend 2% of your GDP on defence. And um, so Australia is massively ramping up its, its defence budget, and at the same time, its aid budget, I think we've talked about this before, is dropping precipitously. We're supposed to be... We did, under Labor, they promised they would lift it to recommended levels for the OECD, which is 0.75, whereas, in fact, we're heading downwards to end up with just 0.21% of GDP. So sort of one-tenth of what we're spending on defence is, is going to end up being spent on on aid, and that's that's a real national disgrace. And similarly... Similar to the US, we're spending a lot of money on defence when, in fact, you think about things like Gonski. If, if some of those funds, some of those billions could be spent on Gonski, you'd get many more jobs and a really a lasting community benefit. That you know, The government is justifying a lot of this defence expenditure by saying it will create jobs. So if they're really interested in creating jobs and genuine community benefit, they should be thinking about education and health, not, not more weapons. And what's the connection between Australian weapons and Saudi Arabia, who are doing their best to ethnically cleanse the people of Yemen? Well, that's it's really an area where the government is trying to hide what it's doing. In December, Christopher Pine, our Minister for Weapons Industry, Defence Industries, my apologies, went to Riyadh and then announced that there have been four big contracts for the Saudis completed by Australia, but they won't tell us what they are and they're covered by commercial incompetence. And in fact, Scott Ludlam and Lisa Singh in the Senate, with good support from the Senate, crossbenchers and all the Labor Party and the Greens, have asked the government to document what these contracts are. And actually, we at Medical Association for Prevention of War have put in a Freedom of Information application looking at slightly different aspects of this, trying to actually find out what we're actually selling and why, because it's not acceptable to 
be selling weapons to the Saudis when they're breaching so many human rights conventions in Yemen. And in fact, in London, in England, there's a, there's a, a high court legal challenge to England sell, selling weapons to the Saudis. So it's no wonder that Australia is trying to keep these commercial in confidence because if it, 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 it may well be that the Saudis are behaving so badly that there may well be legal challenge here. But first, we've got to find out what they're doing. And it's good to see another Labour high flyer looking after the interests of the weapons manufacturer. We have former union leader Greg Combay. People remember him from the MUA dispute. He's out there spruiking to have defence contracts built here in Victoria. Yes, that appointment was very disappointing. I would always have an incredibly high opinion of Greg Combay, so I was very sorry to see that he was acting in this role. Yes, the Australian government's put out a $2.2 billion, uh, missile defence contract and Victoria is, is bidding as hard as it can to try and win some of that contract. It is really um, ironic when they went on and on and on about subsidising the car industry and what a poor choice that was for, for government monies and here they are spending enormous sums in defence and effectively subsidising industries once again, but these industries are much more harmful and have much greater damage to society. So, yes, I was very disappointed to see Greg Combay in that role. And these defence contractors moving in on Victorian universities, and I dare say it's other states as well? Well, yes, you've got Lockheed Martin partnering with Melbourne University, and I think that's, again, for a university that's clearly very well funded and and not really in need of partnerships to, to be getting into bed with the world's largest weapons manufacturer is, is very damaging to the reputation and, and will not only damage the reputation with students but also damage the reputation with their alumni. And to me it seems like false economy because they, like, they rely on their old students a lot for funding so I, I, I think it's a very um, disturbing development. Are you aware of protests? Yes, there were protests last year in, in from the student body. It, it, it all came out very much towards the end of the year, so the Melbourne University Student Union put on a protest. Um, I know the Melbourne University uh, medical students are in the process of writing to the Chancellor and the Board of the University, and certainly we at Medical Association for Prevention of War wrote to those individuals late last year and entered into some correspondence, but in the end they stopped responding because I feel they felt they couldn't justify it further. Well, on the positive side, there's going to be a good night ahead next Monday. Anzac yes, Eve. If, if your listeners would like to come, we'd love to see them. It should be an excellent night on Anzac Eve. So that's Monday, the 24th of April, as you say, next Monday at 7 o'clock. We have a terrific lineup. We've got comedy with Rod Quantock. We've got an excellent speaker in Michael Hamill Green, who's a peace activist and Vietnam War conscientious objector. We've got choirs, a couple of choirs, the Brunswick Rose Choirs and the Australian Anti-Conscription Coalition Choir. And then we've got a bit of poetry from Alice Milik Ogeza. So that's that's going to be a terrific night, I think. And, and it's always we always try and make Anzac Eve an event where we think about the alternatives to war and what positive things we can do in terms of acting to, for a more peaceful world. If your listeners are interested in that, it's going to be held at Trades Hall, which is in Carlton, on the corner of Ligon Street and Victoria Street at the Bella Union Bar that's upstairs. And if they'd like to, it'd be really helpful if people are coming. So 7 o'clock, the, the website they should look at is www.bellaunion.com.au. So that's uh, Bella Union, B-E-L-L-A Union, 
alloneword.com.au and um, there's, a, there's a website they can click in. Entry is free. We do ask for gold coin donations to cover some of our costs, but there'll be uh, supper provided and drinks at the bar, so it should be a really good night. Okay, see you there, Maggie. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. That's terrific. Yeah, I reckon it'll be a pretty good night. That's Bella Union Bar next Monday. Looks good. It's now five minutes to five on 3CR, and we've got another hour to go. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways, but in Pogara they discharge their tailings in the waterways, and they kill us, and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Hey, are you wearing the latest 3CR t-shirt this summer? We have a limited number of 40th birthday t-shirts for sale. Designed by local artist Emily Floyd, these awesome Radical Radio t-shirts are available from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. Or you can shop online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. For just $20 or $15 for kids' sizes, you can look great and help 3CR celebrate 40 years of Radical Radio. Now, first in a series of three talks on the Russian Revolution until the death of Lenin by Chris Gaffney, lifelong activist, secretary of the Victorian Labour College, who taught Marxism at the Victorian Trade Hall Council for over 25 years. I'm going to talk about the Russian Revolution, and it occurred not in, a, in an advanced capitalist country, as Marx and Engels had expected, but in a backward country, which had barely emerged from serfdom. People were actually serfs until 1863, and where industrial capitalist development was preceded by not a bourgeois revolution or centuries of gradual capitalist development, such as happened in France or, or Britain. Marx had argued that what made socialism possible that is, workers' control of production in the state, full political democracy, full equality, etc., was the development of the productive forces to a sufficient degree to provide plenty for all for the first time in human history. In other words, not a country like Russia. Without this affluence, says Marx, any attempt to establish socialism must fail, because, to quote Marx, without it, only want is made general, and with want the struggle for necessities and all the old crap would necessarily be reproduced, end of quote. So the question arises, why did a revolution break out in Russia? And more importantly, why was it a working class revolution? Russia was a backward country, but at the same time it was part of the world economy, only one part of the world capitalist system. Lenin used the formula, the chain broke at its weakest link. 
But wars have the habit of drawing countries into their conflict at various stages of development. But they demand the same level of participation. There's not special rules for weak countries. The more backward the country, the greater the burden of the war on that country's economy. Russia, of course, was the first to leave the military field. But apart from the war, the more advanced the general forces of production are, the tenser the competition on the world market, the sharper the antagonisms, the madder the race for armaments, the harder it becomes for your weaker participants, like Russia. That's why the backward countries were the first to collapse. Well, the war alone wasn't alone responsible for the revolution, because even in times of peace, Russian society would have fallen victim to the same contradictions that exploded in 1917. This probably explains why the Tsarist state suffered shipwreck, but it doesn't explain why a socialist revolution should succeed in a backward country. The breakdown of old feudal Russia, you would have expected, would have led to a capitalist revolution, a bourgeois revolution, as in France, 1789, rather than a socialist state. In fact, one section of the Russian revolutionary movement, the Mensheviks, argued that capitalism inevitably follows feudalism, so the bourgeoisie must be the new ruling class after the Tsar has fallen. That had to be the next stage. This, from that they argued, that the task of the revolutionary socialists and the working class was to encourage the bourgeoisie, or the capitalists, to seize power. This position led the Mensheviks to support the bourgeoisie even in opposition to the working class. A second view was held by Lenin and the Bolshevik Party, at least until April 1917. And their view was that the bourgeoisie would not seize power from the Tsarist aristocracy, but the workers and peasants would have to do the job for them. That is, a worker-peasant dictatorship would establish capitalism and complete the capitalist democratic revolution, voting and parliaments and all the rest of it, thus creating conditions for the later workers' revolution. Trotsky alone held that the revolution would actually have to be led by the working class in alliance with the peasants and that it would have to proceed immediately to the creation of a workers' state. In other words, leaping that capitalist stage. Why was this case? Because in the era of uh, imperialism, there is, in the case of Russia, the pressure of the progressive countries on this extremely backward one. The backward countries have got to catch up with the progressive ones, not by recreating the history of the more advanced countries, but by going straight to the latest technology. At the beginning of the 20th century, industry occupied a small place in Russia compared with agriculture. In 1914, Russia's productivity rate was eight to ten times lower than that of the United States. Almost without a single highway, Russia began to build railways in the 1880s. Without having gone through the European artisan and manufacturing stages of development, Russia passed directly to mechanised production. To leap over intermediate stages is the way of backward countries. But outside the city or the industrial complex, peasant agriculture remained at the level of the 17th century, while at the same time, Russian industry, at least in its type, if not its scope, reached the technical level of the progressive countries. For example, where there was industry in Russia, it wasn't in little small factories spread throughout the country, but concentrated. 
In fact, gigantic enterprises with more than 100 workers each employed in the United States less than 18% of the industrial workers. In Russia, it was more than 41%. This is not to say that Russia wasn't backward. It was. But it shows the components that could produce a socialist revolution in Russia. This same contradictory character between modern and antique, so to speak, was seen in the class structure of Russia. Faced with the necessity of trying to keep pace with the West, the Tsarist government encouraged foreign investment and the finance capital of Europe went into Russia at a rapid rate from about 1880 on. The Russian bourgeoisie, the Russian capitalists, were dependent on the Russian state and on foreign capital, particularly British and French. They were in no position to initiate a struggle against absolutism, the landed aristocracy and the Tsar. Such industries existed, assumed a large-scale and anti-popular character. The owners, the foreign stockholders, of course, lived outside the country. The workers, on the other hand, were Russian. Against a numerically weak bourgeoisie with no national roots, there stood confronting it a relatively strong and concentrated working class with strong roots amongst the people and a high level of class consciousness. The workers hadn't had years of parliamentary rule and ALP-style social democracy to spread social and political conservatism. Nevertheless, the young and energetic working class still constituted a minority of the nation, about 25 to 30%. The peasants were 70% of the people. Now, in the countryside, the peasants' communal areas amounted to 196 million acres. Yet 30,000 large landowners, average 2,800 acres each, owned a total of 9.8 million acres, that is, as much as 10 million peasants. But a peasant revolt is something you expect at the beginning of capitalism, like in the English Civil War and in the French Revolution. Why? Peasantry isn't a class that wants to abolish private property. It went, he wants private property, but it wants it in its hands rather than the landed aristocrats. So when peasant revolt broke out in August 1917, it didn't drive the bourgeoisie forward to seize power as it did in France in 1789, but backwards into the hands of reaction, relying as it did on the Russian state and foreign landowners. The peasants, backward and ignorant, heavily dominated by the church, were isolated from the centres of power, production and culture, turned to the workers. Because had the bourgeoisie been able to meet the peasants' demand, the workers wouldn't have been able to achieve power in 1917, remembering, of course, the peasants are 70% of the population. But the Russian bourgeoisie, a cowardly Johnny-come-lately, dare not lift a hand against the feudal property. The power to change society thereby became the priority of the workers. For organs of mass democracy, the Soviets, which is a Russian word for workers' council, it was necessary for two historical factors to come into existence and work together. That was a peasant war, a movement characteristic of the dawn of capitalist development, and a revolt of the working class, which announces the decline of capitalism. These were the sources of the combined character of the Russian Revolution. The peasants, although in revolt, were unable, because of their social situation, to give expression to their indignation. They found the leadership in the workers. The second great reserve of the revolution was the oppressed nationalities, which were largely peasants. 
The Tsar estate had grown enormously in the past, subjugating the very backward areas and basing itself on them in order to stifle the more developed nationalities of the West. The Russian liberals, as seen in men like Kerensky on the agrarian and peasant questions, was not willing to go beyond a certain amelioration of the regime of oppression and violence towards the peasants, which reflected his class's position. The Bolshevik pledge of self-determination for the oppressed nationalities won their confidence, although we should note that their rights were later violated by the Stalinist regime. Prior to the 20th century, there were a variety of approaches amongst revolutionaries as to the need to destroy the Tsarist regime. There was a group called the Populists, who split into two wings, we'd call them anarchists today, the Lavarists and People's Will. They said Russia won't go through a capitalist stage like the West, but that socialism can only be reached through the organisation of the peasantry. They relied on political terror and assassination against the Tsarist forces, and Lenin's brother was, of course, one of the ones responsible for the assassination of Alexander the Tsar, I think, in 1880. At the commencement of the 20th century, the Social Democratic Party of Russia was founded, and at its second congress in London in 1903, a split took place that was to take great historical significance. The break took place on the question of who can become a member of the Social Democratic Party. Lenin maintained that only those devoting their lives to the revolutionary movement who saw their work as a profession subject to discipline from a central body, in other words, professional revolutionaries. These are the only people entitled to membership. Other equally eminent Marxists on the other side said membership should be open to all who profess belief in the Labour movement, a bit like admission to the Labour Party. We should note that Lenin's concept of the party was something altogether different from the monolithic bureaucratic instrument of control that developed under the Stalinist bureaucracy. Self-criticism and internal democracy were a vital part of the internal life of the party in Lenin's day. When the party later divided on the question of the actual insurrection in October 1917, the men who had opposed the insurrection, like Kamenev and Dinoviev, were not only not expelled, not shot, but were actually elected to the Central Committee of the party. Even Lenin on several occasions found himself in a minority. The operating basis of Lenin's party was democratic centralism, which combined the fullest internal freedom to discuss with complete unity of action. Party life was based on it, that is the party, being part of the working class, organised separately but having no interest outside the needs of the class and the class struggle. In 1904, Russia declared war on Japan and to everyone's surprise, the Japanese won. By August 1905, they were forced to sign peace terms as a beaten power. This revealed all the rottenness of the feudal aristocracy. Before the war's end, the country bordered on revolution. The capitalists put forward demand for a limited monarchy and a legislative assembly. Soviets, or councils of workers and peasants' deputy, were set up for the first time, not by the Bolshevik party or any party, but by the workers themselves. The Social Democrats, the Marxists, worked through the Soviets for support of the demands of the bourgeoisie, because remember, at that time, they believed the next stage would have to be the, the capitalist stage. The Social Democrats hoped through the Soviets to carry the revolution to its finality and so pay the way for the later victory of the workers. 
But in 1905, the forces against Tsarism weren't strong enough to depose it. The Tsarist government limped on until it was caught up in World War I in 1914. And that was Chris Gaffney. I'm quite sure that's a voice familiar to many people. The program before this one, Great Voices, and also on Friday, Keep Left. And this is another voice of Chris. But before I do that, I'll say that that's number one of three talks by Chris. And I've got a suspicion that this voice might be Chris as well. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Yesterday, the 17th of April, more than 1,300 Palestinian detainees held by Israel initiate the first day of a hunger strike. And that day also marks the Palestinian Prisoners' Day, while hundreds of detainees are preparing to join the strike for dignity. They're in six prisons in Israel, and they've returned their meals, declaring the beginning of an open-ended hunger strike. They are protesting the escalating Israeli violations, including medical neglect, arbitrary administrative detention, denying the family visits and solitary confinement. Israel is holding captive at least 6,500 Palestinians, including 300 children, 19 mothers and 500 who are held under administrative detention orders without charges or trial. Amongst the detainees are 13 elected legislators, two former government ministers, 28 journalists and hundreds of academics. 1,800 detainees suffer from various illnesses, including 180 who are facing life-threatening conditions and 26 cancer patients in addition to 80 disabled Palestinians. The following is an article written by one of those prisoners, Marwan Baguti, who is one of Palestine's most respected and unifying leaders. Despite years of imprisonment and solitary confinement in Israeli jails, he has remained resilient in his efforts to find peace and freedom for his people. The article I'm quoting from appeared in the New York Times. Haradim Prison, Israel. Having spent the last 15 years in an Israeli prison, I have been both a witness to and a victim of Israel's illegal system of mass arbitrary arrests and ill treatment of Palestinian prisoners. After exhausting all other options, I have decided there is no choice but to resist these abuses by going on a hunger strike. Some 1,000 Palestinian prisoners have decided to take part in this hunger strike, which begins today, the day we observe here as Prisoners' Day. Hunger striking is the most peaceful form of resistance available. It inflicts pain solely on those who participate and on their loved ones. 
in the hope that their empty stomachs and their sacrifice will help the message resonate beyond the confines of their dark cells. Decades of experience have proved that Israel's inhumane system of colonial and military occupation aims to break the spirit of prisoners and the nation to which they belong by inflicting suffering on their bodies, separating them from their families and communities, using humiliating measures to compel subjugation. In spite of such treatment, we will not surrender to it. Israel, the occupying power, has violated international law in multiple ways for nearly 70 years, and yet has been granted impunity for its actions. It has committed grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions against the Palestinian people. The prisoners, including men, women and children, are no exception. I was only 15 when I was first imprisoned. I was barely 18 when an Israeli interrogator forced me to spread my legs while I stood naked in the interrogation room before hitting my genitals. I passed out from the pain and the resulting fall left an everlasting scar on my forehead. The interrogator mocked me afterwards saying that I would never procreate because people like me give birth only to terrorists and murderers. A few years later I was again in an Israeli prison leading a hunger strike when my first son was born. Instead of the sweets we usually distribute to celebrate such news, I handed out salt to the other prisoners. When he was barely 18, he in turn was arrested and spent four years in Israeli prisons. The eldest of my four children is now a man of 31, yet here I am still, pursuing the struggle for freedom along with thousands of prisoners, millions of Palestinians and the support of so many around the world. What is it with the arrogance of the occupier and the oppressor and their backers that makes them deaf to this simple truth. Our chains will be broken before we are, because it is human nature to heed the call for freedom, regardless of the cost. Israel has built nearly all of its prisons inside Israel, rather than in the occupied territories. In doing so, it has unlawfully and forcibly transferred Palestinian civilians into captivity and has used this situation to restrict family visits and to inflict suffering on prisoners through long transports under cruel conditions. It turned basic rights that should be guaranteed under international law, including some painfully secured through previous hunger strikes, into privileges its prison service decided to grant us or deprive us of. Palestinian prisoners and detainees have suffered from torture, inhumane and degrading treatment and medical neglect. Some have been killed while in detention. According to the latest count from the Palestinian Prisoners Club, about 200 Palestinians have died since 1967 because of such actions. Palestinian prisoners and their families also remain a primary target of Israel's policy of imposing collective punishments. Through our hunger strike, we seek an end to these abuses. 
over the past five decades, according to the human rights group Adamea. More than 800,000 Palestinians have been imprisoned or detained by Israel, equivalent to about 40% of the Palestinian territory's male population. Today, about 6,500 are still in prison, amongst them some who have the dismal distinction of holding world records for the longest period in detention of political prisoners. There is hardly a single family in Palestine that has not endured the suffering caused by the imprisonment of one or several of its members. How to account for this unbelievable state of affairs? Israel has established a dual legal regime, a form of judicial apartheid, that provides virtual impunity for Israelis who commit crimes against Palestinians while criminalising Palestinian presence and resistance. Israel's courts are a charade of justice, clearly instruments of colonial military occupation. According to the State Department, the conviction rate for Palestinians in the military courts is nearly 90%. Among the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians whom Israel has taken captive are children, women, parliamentarians, activists, journalists, human rights defenders, academics, political figures, militants, bystanders, family members of prisoners, and all with one aim, to bury the legitimate aspirations of an entire nation. Instead, though, Israel's prisons have become the cradle of a lasting movement for Palestinian self-determination. This new hunger strike will demonstrate once more that the prisoners' movement is the compass that guides our struggle, the struggle for freedom and dignity, the name we have chosen for this next step in our long walk to freedom. The Israeli authorities and its prison service have turned basic rights that should be guaranteed under international law, including those painfully secured during previous hunger strikes, into privileges they decide to grant us or deprive us of. Israel has tried to brand us all as terrorists to legitimise its violations, including mass arbitrary arrests, torture, punitive measures and severe restrictions. As part of Israel's effort to undermine the Palestinian struggle for freedom, an Israeli court sentenced me to five life sentences and 40 years in prison in a political show trial that was denounced by international observers. Israel is not the first occupying or colonial power to resort to such expedients. Every national liberation movement in history can recall similar practices. This is why so many people who have fought against oppression, colonisation and apartheid stand with us. The international campaign to free Marwan Bagati and all Palestinian prisoners that the anti-apartheid icon Amen Kathrada and my wife Fadwa inaugurated in 2013 from Nelson Mandela's former cell on Robben Island has enjoyed the support of eight Nobel Peace Prize laureates, 120 governments and hundreds of leaders, parliamentarians, artists and academics around the world.
Their solidarity exposes Israel's moral and political failure. Rights are not bestowed by an oppressor. Freedom and dignity are universal rights that are inherent in humanity, to be enjoyed by every nation and all human beings. Palestinians will not be an exception. Only ending occupation will end this injustice and mark the birth of peace. Those are the words of Palestinian activist Marwan Bouguti, who, as he said in that article which was published in the New York Times, he's serving five sentences, life sentences plus 40 years in a show trial, result of a show trial in Israel. That was um, Marwan speaking about why we are on a hunger strike in Israel's prisons. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. We want to hear from you. Our station is all about serving the community, and we want to know your thoughts, comments and ideas to help shape our future. We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us get to know you better and understand what you want from your local radio service. The results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of our valued community. To have your voice heard, head to our website and fill out the survey. Finally on the program, we turn to Issues Nuclear with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. In the media in recent days, there's been a lot of talk about potential nuclear war on the Korean Peninsula. Korea has been developing its uh, nuclear arsenal and the United States has deployed the Carl Vinson carrier battle group towards uh, the Korean Peninsula. Obviously, the risk of accidental, let alone intentional war, is great. But I think it's important to keep in perspective that the revival of the debate about the nuclear issue in the media often misses both the history of how other countries have developed their nuclear arsenals, but more importantly, about the resistance to nuclear war that is growing both historically and indeed in contemporary times. The obvious point, you know, the the North Koreans have conducted five nuclear tests and uh, uh, there's some suggestion they'll hold a sixth test in coming weeks. But all the nuclear powers use nuclear testing to develop the miniaturised weapons that could be placed on intercontinental ballistic missiles. You know, France conducted 193 atmospheric and underground tests at Mururon Fungatofa Atolls. Britain conducted a dozen tests in Australia, nine atomic and hydrogen bomb tests in the the, uh, Lion Islands, the United States, as well as uh, hundreds of tests in uh, the Nevada desert, conducted 67 atomic tests in the Marshall Islands, another 24 tests on Christmas Island. Russia conducted at Semipalatinsk in Kazakhstan 426 nuclear tests. 
So the current focus on Korea developing a nuclear arsenal has to be placed in context. All the nuclear weapons powers have tested their nuclear weapons to make sure that they work and to miniaturise them so that they're usable. So the sort of hypocrisy of people lecturing the North Koreans is more about whether there should be nuclear weapons at all rather than the North Koreans being uh, particularly evil or particularly uh, out of the ordinary when it comes to the decision to develop weapons of mass destruction. And surely the powers that have nuclear weapons now are upgrading their own computer? Yeah, and that uh, process is very much underway in the United States, both under the Obama administration and under the Trump administration, there are commitments to modernise the nuclear weapons arsenal and uh, a number of the weapons that were developed were developed back in the 70s and 80s and need to be replaced. So often when there's talk about reducing the size of the nuclear arsenal, um, as has happened uh, since the peak of the Cold War with both the Russian nuclear arsenal and the American, there also needs to be kept uh, in perspective that the nuclear powers will get rid of old and outdated weapons but continue to build smaller numbers but more efficient nuclear weapons. And so we see literally hundreds of millions of dollars being pledged towards the modernisation of the United States nuclear arsenal. But all this is happening at a time when there is significant moves towards uh, a nuclear weapons ban treaty because of the growing proliferation of weapons, and North Korea is just the latest, um, after Israel and India and Pakistan uh, and uh, potentially Iran in the future, um, as well as other countries, uh, Japan, Korea, Saudi Arabia and others who've in the past talked about developing nuclear weapons, like Australia in the 1960s, a number of countries that have pledged to be nuclear-free, ranging from Mexico to New Zealand to Austria to Mongolia, Uh, South Africa and others, are working towards a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. Negotiations that are supposed to happen in the Committee on Disarmament, the major global structure for disarmament talks, have been stalled for decades. There's been no functional negotiations by the nuclear powers to meet their obligations under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and get rid of nuclear weapons. So non nuclear states, these middle powers, have started a process which had the first round of negotiations in late March and another round of negotiations to come in June, July this year to develop a treaty to ban nuclear weapons, to ban the production, the testing, the use or the stockpiling of such weapons. This will involve systems of verification, it'll involve building on existing nuclear weapons free zones, it'll be a long process and certainly won't happen overnight. And in uh, March, we saw 120 countries participate in good faith in these negotiations. (laughs) One of the absent countries, of course, was Australia. Malcolm Turnbull and his government, uh, who opposed the idea of a nuclear weapons ban, wouldn't even go to the negotiations to argue their case, which just shows how closely aligned Australia's defence policy is with the United States and its nuclear warfighting strategies, similarly to Japan. But um, a number of mid-level countries, including pretty much all of our neighbours, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, most Pacific Island countries, Bar One, uh, the FSM, were all involved in either co-sponsoring the resolution or participating in the negotiations. I think we're likely to see, developed later this year, a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. And we'll see 
more than half the UN General Assembly, the vast majority of humanity, signed that treaty. Now, obviously, the nuclear weapons powers won't sign it straight away, but it sets an international norm for action, and it places political pressure on countries to justify why they have nuclear weapons. And, of course, we have to remember that one of those nuclear powers is Britain. This is shown that this political pressure can have some impact. People say, oh, look, the nuclear powers will never respond to these sorts of challenges. But we've had a very recent example where that's happened. In 2014, the Marshall Islands took all nine nuclear weapons powers to the International Court of Justice, claiming that the nuclear states had not met their obligations under Article 6 of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. That article says that while you hold nuclear weapons, you must negotiate towards comprehensive disarmament. Now, there just aren't those sort of negotiations going on, and none of the nuclear weapons powers are showing any interest in that. So the Marshall Islands, which lived through 67 atmospheric nuclear tests at Bikini and Eniwetok, took the nuclear states to the ICJ, to the highest international court. Cases proceeded against Britain, against India, against Pakistan to preliminary hearings, preliminary submissions, and then the court ruled that they couldn't proceed because there was no dispute between Marshall Islands and Britain. Obviously, Britain didn't test in the Marshall Islands. It tested in the neighbouring country of Kiribati. So the ICJ ruled that there was no direct dispute between India and Marshalls, between Britain and the Marshalls. The Americans refused to, to enter into those submissions. But what the challenge to Britain was, was such that they decided that they would withdraw from the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. So the challenge from a small state like the Marshall Islands so spooked the British nuclear establishment that they have withdrawn from ICJ jurisdiction. They refuse to have the court rule on questions of nuclear weapons. That's astounding. It certainly happened before. In 1955, Britain was being challenged by Japan over the looming British nuclear tests in Kiribati. Britain was moving towards developing a hydrogen bomb and uh, announced that it would test in, uh, in Christmas Island. And Japan threatened to take Britain to the newly established ICJ back in the 1950s. And Britain similarly withdrew from the ICJ, refused to have the ICJ rule over these questions. So you can see that these diplomatic initiatives by small and mid-sized states can have an impact on nuclear weapons countries. And that's because they don't want to have a debate domestically. We're seeing in the United Kingdom at the moment serious changes after Brexit. Britain has been integrated into EU defence strategies through NATO and through the common European policies. So you've seen joint defence activity through um, uh, European um, armaments industries, EADS, the giant European uh, Aerospace Defence Systems Corporation, which has British, French and German money in it. And so Britain's withdrawal from the EU is opening up a debate about what sort of defence should happen, what should happen to NATO's common policy if France and the uh, British, two nuclear weapons powers on the UN Security Council, are no longer in the same uh, regional alliance. And that's causing debate too, because Scotland, as it moves towards a second referendum on independence, one that quite possibly might succeed this time compared to the, the uh, very close-run first referendum, Scotland has said that if they were independent of England, they would maintain a nuclear-free policy similar to countries like Austria and New Zealand and Mongolia and many others. And so you've got a situation 
where the current British and American submarine forces based at Faslane, major military base in Scotland, would have to withdraw if Scotland developed a nuclear-free policy. And that's the, the policy of key parties like the Scottish Labour Party, like the Scottish National Party and many other left-wing groups as well. And that would raise real questions. If they had to move out of Faslane, where would they go? Would they spend hundreds of millions of pounds to build a new base in the south of England um, that could host the Trident nuclear submarines uh, that Britain has got on lease from the United States? So these sort of debates, the diplomatic moves that we see within the United Nations may seem a bit airy-fairy, given that most of the countries involved don't have nuclear weapons. But it sets up a, a, a debate on nuclear weapons that we haven't seen for a long time, and it puts pressure on the nuclear powers about their interoperability, about their involvement in treaties with the European Union or with ANZUS in our own region. Just wondering what the penalty or the blowback for Scotland might be if they kick the base out. Well, there'll be enormous pressure on Scotland, but uh, the Scots have said that they want to stay with the European Union. If they were an independent Scotland, they'd want to be a member of the European Union. So this is a broader debate about um, NATO, about nuclear weapons, about the Cold War alliances that were created, you know, in the second half of the 20th century and how relevant those are in the 21st century. So I think um, just as we've seen a, a global debate about climate change and about the threat to the environment, I think we're seeing a resurgence of debate about nuclear weapons. And the other connection, of course, is to civilian nuclear power and the connection between nuclear weapon states and the role of civil power, nuclear energy, in this. And that debate has been heightened, obviously, by the Fukushima disaster in Japan. What's the latest on Fukushima, Nick? It's a mess, and it's a serious mess. One of the problems is that the latest sort of evidence that's been revealed by TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, is that the uh, vessel containing the nuclear rods was breached during the accident, um, something that was denied at first when the accident happened in 2011. The levels of radiation within the building are so high that uh, human beings can't get into the area where there's um, the worst uh, meltdown. And indeed, uh, they send in a robot, uh, a sort of mechanical device, to go and take pictures, to take samples. And that died within 45 minutes because of the, uh, the heat and the contamination that's still there. One of the problems is that um, radioactive isotopes are leaching into the water table in the area around the Fukushima reactors. The Fukushima number one reactor, uh, which is still out of operation, is leaching radioactivity and dangerous isotopes into the marine environment. And there's desperate attempts to try and block that contamination getting into the Pacific Ocean and spreading. The latest figures I've seen is that the clean-up and decontamination of the site is going to take 30 or 40 years, and current costings is 160 billion US dollars, and counting, 160 billion dollars. Normally it takes about three, maybe four billion dollars to decommission a nuclear reactor. It's not like a, a normal power plant. We've seen, you know, the closure of Hazelwood uh, in Victoria, and that's going to take quite a while to decommission and to fully uh, dismantle the operation, given uh, the toxics that are involved in, in many industrial processes. But a nuclear power plant is obviously a lot more complex, given all the piping and so on, can still contain uh, hazardous radiation and, uh, you know, and toxic uh, materials. 
but the leaks in the Fukushima plant are going to be there for decades and it's going to cause a long-term problem. And this is a, a serious challenge. You know, this is a nuclear sacrifice zone, one of many, um, like the nuclear testing sites that, uh, you know, the contamination of Mururo Atoll by the French. Um, there's five kilograms of plutonium, five kilograms of plutonium spread through the in sediments, in particles, uh, through the lagoon at Mururoa. That's not me talking, that's the International Atomic Energy, Energy Agency has admitted that much. You know, anti-nuclear activists have been saying this for a long time. And only after testing finished did the IAEA acknowledge that the lagoon at Mururoa is essentially fucked forevermore. I think this is a, a real problem, that we're creating sacrifice zones, often on the land of indigenous people, uh, you know, the Navajo uh, through uranium mining in, uh, in America, Aboriginal land in Australia. This is a, a, an ongoing challenge. People often say, oh, nuclear weapons have kept the peace. And yet there have been people affected by nuclear testing, the, the military personnel who staffed the nuclear test sites, indigenous people on whose land the tests were conducted, whether that's in Kazakhstan, whether that's in the Nevada desert, whether that's at Maralinga and Emu Field in South Australia. And then to add insult to injury, we have the, the Weatherall government, a, a supposed Labor government, talking about establishing a nuclear waste dump on the uh, sacrifice zone land in uh, the South Australian desert so that Australia can be host for the waste that is generated by other countries. This is, uh, this is crazy. There's certainly a need to address um, how you store for literally tens of thousands of years high-level radioactive waste. But the first step in the process is not to generate any more while you have to deal with the consequences of this uh, incredibly uh, complex technical uh, challenge. You're listening to the final part of Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher. You mentioned Kazakhstan there. What is known about the impact on the testing ground in the Soviet Union and as China and Pakistan, India, Israel? Is there any knowledge of what the impacts of those are? It varies from country to country about how much information is available. We know relatively little, for example, about the Chinese testing zone at Lop Nor because of ongoing state secrecy. The Americans, surprisingly, are, are relatively open and there's a lot of documentation now available about the US testing program. There's a wonderful website put up by a guy called Alex Wellerstein called the Marshall Islands Nuclear Documentation uh, Database, which contains a lot of original documents from the 1940s and 50s that are now available. The British, in contrast, maintain incredible secrecy over their nuclear weapons programs. I've been writing a book about the British nuclear tests and found that a number of key files are still closed to public access for another 30 or 40 years. There was a process where Britain was flying planes out of Darwin in 1954 to monitor the US uh, and the Marshall Islands. There's a program called Operation Aconite where Royal Air Force planes were flying out of Australia to monitor the US tests like the Bravo tests at Bikini Atoll. Now I tried to get access to those files um, I know the file numbers, but they're under you know, national security laws. They're still closed for another 30 or 40 years. So the British, compared to the Americans, are very secretive and uh, still maintain a lot of key documentation under the Official Secrets Act. 
We know more about Kazakhstan in recent years. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, there's been a lot more research done by uh, researchers, particularly through bodies like the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. And there was a major study published on nuclear testing in Kazakhstan just uh, recently uh, in the Nuclear Proliferation Review. There's a growing oral history, too, of people who were involved and some real horror stories coming out during the uh, lead-up to the first Soviet hydrogen bomb, which was in August 1953, the first hydrogen bomb test. They evacuated a number of people from the area around the, the test site in Kazakhstan at Semipalatinsk. Two and a half thousand people nearly and 40,000 livestock were moved away although they did leave 40 inhabitants of one settlement, a place called Karul, and they were left behind within the danger zone of the, um, the uh, mushroom cloud, the fallout, and Soviet scientists and medical personnel uh, conducted medical experiments on those people afterwards to see the effect of radiation on human beings. Now, once again, like the North Koreans, you can talk about the evil of that sort of uh, attitude, the, the, the casual racism that Kazakh people were, were left to be, you know, affected by radioactive fallout. And then scientists would look at the harm that ionizing radiation causes to human beings. And yet the Americans did the same thing in the Marshall Islands um, after the uh, original tests uh, at Bikini and Eniwetok Atoll a project called Project 4.1 was created and Brookhaven National Laboratory from Long Island, New York appointed a number of doctors, a guy called Robert Connard, Dr. Robert Connard, a name that should go down in infamy, and they conducted medical experiments and uh, studies on the hundreds of Marshallese who were affected by the radioactive fallout that came from tests, particularly the Bravo hydrogen bomb test in uh, March 1954. People were probed and prodded and so on, often without informed consent, often without knowledge. And reading the documents that were written, there was about 54 studies have been found so far, conducted uh, under Project 4.1 on Marshall Islanders were there. And that happened in Australia as well. The United States began a project called Project Sunshine to look at the spread of strontium-90. Strontium is a radioactive isotope that has a half-life of about 30 years. So within 30 years, um, half of it will decay, and then another 30 years, another half, until gradually it, the energy uh, decays away. And during the 1950s and 60s, people were very aware that strontium was spreading around the world because of the high level of atmospheric testing being conducted, particularly by United States, uh, Soviet Union, and Britain at the time. The authorities were very well aware that as the mushroom cloud blew up into the stratosphere, that high-level winds would carry strontium-90 around the world and it would be captured into the food chain, particularly through milk, and people were finding high levels of uh, strontium within children. Uh, that was known at the time. It's a much better study today. And that's because this project called Project Sunshine was begun it operated across 19 countries, including Australia and Papua New Guinea, where medical personnel and scientists collected the bones of uh, dead children and some dead adults, particularly children, sent them off to England uh, to the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment at Aldermaston for analysis of how much strontium could be found in the bones. In England, thousands of, of children were taken. Once again, often without informed consent, often without telling the parents 
that the bones of their dead babies were being taken for strontium testing. This sort of stuff went on right through up until 1973. It, when you read the documents, the, 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 the shocking nature of it, where often these studies were conducted without any informed consent, without any involvement of the families of those that had died, particularly young babies and children. And in some cases, quite obscene procedures. The children from Rongelap, the atoll that was one of the most heavily irradiated atolls from the Bravo test, the American hydrogen bomb test, scientists from Project 4.1 took both decayed teeth and healthy teeth from the mouths of young children to see how much strontium was in their bones, their teeth, because of the uh, US atmospheric testing. So this sort of stuff has gone on, and we know more about the Americans, less about the British, less about the French, a bit more about the Soviet Union, pretty much nothing about Israel, pretty much nothing about uh, China because of national security. And there can be no closure without full disclosure. Um, even though nuclear testing in the atmosphere ended in 1996, uh, 1975 with atmospheric testing, then underground testing finished in 1996 in the South Pacific, Still decades on, there's a lot of stuff we hasn't been revealed because of so-called official secrecy, because the nuclear powers don't want to debate about the costs and benefits of nuclear weapons. Because once you start debating the costs and benefits of nuclear weapons, you realise that thermonuclear death is obscene. And the notion that you would incinerate cities full of innocent non-combatants is just obscene. So when you hear the drums beating over North Korea, when you hear the Americans deploying their nuclear armed task force into the waters off the Korean Peninsula, and when you hear Kim Jong-un and other Stalinists talk about launching nuclear war, it has to be challenged and it has to be stopped. And the current negotiations for a nuclear weapons test ban are an important part of that process. The fact that Malcolm Turnbull and his government refused to participate in the first round of negotiations is a sign of how closely we're integrated into American nuclear strike strategies under the principles of extended nuclear deterrence that we live under the American nuclear umbrella. It's time that we started discussing how we can step out from under that umbrella and join with our neighbours like Indonesia, like New Zealand, like Papua New Guinea, like Fiji and others to ban nuclear weapons. Just one more instance of the testing, Nick. What's known about the early French test in the Algerian desert? The French began their program in Algeria, which was then a colony in the middle of the Algerian War, which lasted between 1954 to 1962. The French began their atmospheric testing, like the British, like the Americans, uh, during the Cold War and like the Russians. They were looking for so-called vast empty spaces away from population centres in Paris. They were looking for, for areas that were seen as empty. But of course these areas weren't empty, so even the Sahara Desert had not only the military personnel, the scientists, civilian staff who staffed the test site, but also there were nomadic peoples uh, in the desert, Touareg and uh, other Arab peoples, who were within the areas designated as danger zones very similar to what happened in Australia, where the British came to test in the deserts of, uh, of South Australia, so the French saw the Sahara as an empty space where they could do atmospheric nuclear testing. So France began with four atmospheric tests at Regan, starting in 1960 till 1962 at uh, a site in the south of what's today Algeria. 
This was at a time when uh, the National Liberation Front, uh, the FLN of Algeria, was fighting a, a war. And I travelled to Algeria in um, 2007 to participate in a conference on these questions and met with a number of people who were survivors of those atmospheric tests. There was one bloke who uh, I interviewed who'd um, been an FLN prisoner captured by the French and was in jail. And he and one day he and a number of other people were taken out of jail in Algiers, flown on a plane to the south, uh, to near Taman Rasset and uh, to Regan, put to work digging trenches through the desert sands for the cabling that would link uh, the actual place where the bomb was located and the bunker um, some miles away where scientists would, uh, would shelter in a concrete bunker to uh, witness the, uh, the atmospheric test, the mushroom cloud that would, would happen at the time of detonation. And these poor blokes who were sent out to dig the trenches and put down the cabling were then thrown back in jail afterwards. And not surprisingly, there was no health records of how they might have been affected from that activity. One of the features of the visit uh, in 2007 to Algeria was that the Algerian government was very interested in the experience in Australia. Britain, in the late 90s, paid over $100 million in a vain attempt to clean up some of the contamination that came, not just from the atmospheric nuclear testing, but also from the nuclear trials and experiments that were conducted between 1957 and 1963 at Maralinga. These weren't, uh, you know, the detonation, the mushroom cloud exploration, explosion, but there were hundreds of nuclear experiments where they did things like burn plutonium. Uh, what would happen if a plane crashed with a nuclear weapon aboard? It wouldn't detonate, but it might burn uh, in a plane crash, and therefore what would happen? So they literally burnt nuclear materials, including plutonium, and these clouds of contaminated smoke spread across the desert. This was in the late 50s, early 60s. It was only after the Royal Commission, the McClellan Royal Commission in the mid-80s, that people were very much aware about these experiments. Britain pledged that they would do something to try and clean it up. And so there was a process um, documented in a wonderful book by a guy called Alan Parkinson uh, where they attempted to scrape off layers of topsoil over vast areas that were, were contaminated by these plumes of plutonium smoke and americium smoke and so on. It didn't work. Um, it was very costly. It only they only decontaminated a small area, and it was clear, you know, very hard to clean up a desert. So the French were interested in the British experience, and uh, we took a lot of documentation to talk about this, and because the the Algerians were very interested in whether the French could do the same thing. Just finally, Nick, you're travelling to Japan soon. What's the likely future for nuclear power in Japan? Well, there's a, a real tension. At the time of the Fukushima accident, Japan had 54 operating civilian nuclear power plants, as well as attempts to build fast breeder reactors at Rokosho uh, to develop the plutonium economy. Pretty much overnight, that whole nuclear system was shut down when the Fukushima accident happened. Many of the power plants were built, you know, decades ago, in the 60s, 70s, early 80s. Some of them were coming to the end of their functional life, like any industrial plant. It's true in America, in Europe and in Japan, plans that uh, decades-old nuclear plants could get an extension of life. 
Um, so after having operated for 30 or 40 years, you might add another 10 years worth of life on by doing a whole range of maintenance tasks and extending, you know, replacing piping and all the mechanical things that one needs to do to ensure a, an ongoing operation. But I think Fukushima has damaged that process and uh, there's enormous citizen reaction to the idea of restarting many of these nuclear plants. The Abe government, the government of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, uh, has been pushing for the reopening of nuclear power plants, and so far I think four, maybe a couple more, have reopened. But that leaves nearly 50 still closed, and this is more than five, six years after the, uh, the accident, and it's unlikely that many of those plants will uh, reopen. As I mentioned earlier, the damage to TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, is enormous. And TEPCO is sort of either going to face bankruptcy or is going to get ordinary taxpayers to bail out the enormous cost of, uh, of decontaminating, firstly, and then uh, decommissioning the Fukushima Daiichi plant. And that's going to take enormous amounts of money. So I think uh, while temporarily Japan's using more coal to generate electricity, it showed that Japan has to rethink its energy policies. To that extent, there's a, a major debate going on within Japan about the cost and consequences of maintaining nuclear power, because like France, Japan uh, was one of the m most uh, important uh, users of nuclear power amongst the capitalist countries. And so we're seeing in America, in much of Europe, in Japan, that people are going to start looking for alternatives rather than spending billions of dollars to extend the life of nuclear power plants. How that ends up, it's complex. Japan doesn't have the, uh, the energy advantages that Australia does in terms of geothermal, in terms of wind, in terms of solar, but there's a whole lot of debates about energy efficiency and so on that the Japanese people are starting to have because they realise that nuclear power is costly and uh, creates enormous problems uh, with uh, waste disposal. It's also intimately linked to the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And so as Donald Trump deploys uh, uh, the Carl Vinson Carrier Task Force off the coast of Korea, as the North Korean regime beats the nuclear war drum, we're going to see uh, increasing debate among citizens to say, is this the way we want to go? And shouldn't we be looking at alternatives? And I think it's really important that we in Australia contribute to that debate. Thanks, Nick, and have a good holiday. Thank you very much, Jan. And that, of course, is Nick McClellan, researcher, journalist extraordinaire. And it's time for me to go. I'll be back next week. Bye for now, and um, stay tuned. In about three minutes' time, you'll be listening to Done By Law. Bye for now.